If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be looking at Hebrew 4.14 through chapter 5, verse 4. If you want to use one of the uh, Bibles there in the seats, it's page 1003. Page 1003 in the chair Bibles, or uh, probably if you're using an ESV Bible that you brought from home, it's still page 1003, most likely. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4. Now, um, you see the title of the sermon today, Priesthood, Promise and Fulfillment. So you see that word priesthood up there? Oh, gosh, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I always do that. Forgot about the kids. Okay, so kids, children ages four to six seem to have already gone. So, hey, what are you studying today? God gives Samson his strength. Okay, so uh, I still want you to go to Hebrews chapter four. But first, we're going to pause and pray for our children. And I for, I'm sorry, I forgot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our children. Children are a gift from you, and we are always grateful. Father, I pray that you would um, give our children hearts and minds to understand your word today, particularly understanding how you, O oh God, gave strength to Samson, and likewise how you give strength to us. We pray that the gospel will be made clear to our children today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so now back to priesthood. You might be tempted to think that, well, okay, priesthood, maybe Jim is going to today, you know, uh, you know we're a Baptist congregation, so maybe he's going to go after, you know, Catholics, um, uh, Episcopals, Orthodox, and Anglicans, because they all have priests in there, so that's what they, they call them. So maybe Jim's going after those today. Maybe he's going to spend all this time talking about why we shouldn't have priests uh, or there shouldn't be a priesthood today. Maybe you're thinking that. Or perhaps you're thinking he's going to go even further. Maybe he's going to go after some kind of, you know, the Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, pull your heart out of your chest kind of priest, and he's going to go after that. Um, well, if that's what you're thinking, if I may quote another priest, you've got another thing coming. Anybody. Anybody. All right. Very good. Judas Priest. Very good. I figured there's three people old enough here to remember that. Okay. But you do. You've got another thing coming. That is not what the message will be, out, be about this morning. We're, we're going to look at priesthood in the Old Testament and then how that helps us to understand Jesus as our great high priest. So we might need to start with the question, why do we study the Old Testament? I mean, isn't this idea, Old Testament idea of priesthood in this Old Testament sacrificial system, isn't it just that? Old? Isn't it old and archaic? And we, we, we really, can't we come up with better examples or metaphors or whatever for understanding who Jesus is and what his role is for us? I mean, you know, couldn't we say Jesus is our defense attorney, our divine therapist, um, oh, or gosh, what's, uh, what's you know, our, our friend, our, our, our hero, you know, something like that? Well, some of those terms and ideas might fit Jesus' role, but not completely, not rightly. And here's what's most important. 
those, those metaphors for understanding Jesus are not defined by a sovereign God. See, we study the Old Testament. We learn from the Old Testament first because it's God's divinely inspired word to us. It is the history of salvation. It is the history of redemption. We often call it redemptive history. And guess who is sovereignly in control of redemptive history? It's it's God. God is sovereignly in control of redemptive history. So there's definitely things we need to understand from the Old Testament to help us grasp what the New Testament is teaching us. That's God's design. That is God's plan to use history, redemptive history, to teach us about our own redemption. That is God's plan. So we study the Old Testament because it is God's plan. But, you know, it's not just that. It's also something that Jesus said. Jesus said in, in, in John 5.39, he said, you, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you will find eternal life. But it is them that give testimony or bear, bear testimony about me. Jesus is saying that all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, it points to, speaks about, and bears witness about me. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The Old Testament points us to Jesus. See, we need a context to understand Christ. If if we just look at the New Testament, we won't have God's context for understanding Jesus' ministry, person, who he is, what he's done. We, We just simply won't. And... Because then we'll come up with all of these contemporary metaphors for Jesus. Jesus will become our divine therapist. Jesus is not our divine therapist. He's our Savior. He's our great high priest. He is our God. How can a divine therapist also be your God? We'll, We'll say Jesus is our defense attorney. Well, Jesus doesn't only plead our case before God. He takes our punishment from God. Do you know a defense attorney on the planet that's done that? Yeah, sure, a defense attorney will plead someone's case before the court and try to get them acquitted, but then does that defense attorney turn around and take the court's punishment? No, but that's exactly what Jesus has done. So Jesus is far more than simply our defense attorney. And then friend, friend, yes, Jesus is our friend, and it's fine and good to think about Jesus as a friend. But he's so much more and greater than simply our friend. You know, this idea of, you know, Jesus as my homeboy or whatever, you know. I mean, Jesus is also the transcendent God of the universe. Okay, so friend, though, does accurately describe part of 
Jesus' role and ministry to us. It is so incomplete. And even if we put divine therapist, defense attorney, friend, hero, bridge, if we put all those together, they're still going to fall short. And they will give us the wrong context for understanding who Jesus is and what he has done and is doing in our lives. No, we, we need to study the Old Testament to get that proper context. And it, it's interesting, just sort of a, some of us get that. Some in, 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 in Christianity and in Christendom get that. Just think about missionaries. I have a sister-in-law, Susan. Many of you have met Susan Logsdon, my sister-in-law, who lives in Senegal in West Africa. And she is working among the Balanta people who... Um, who for the longest time, had no gospel witness. They had a language that was spoken, but not read or written. And so what Susan did 25-plus years ago was move to Senegal, West Africa, and live among the Balanta people and simply learn their language. And then after learning their language, her and others on her team worked at developing an alphabet for that language and a grammar and getting all of that approved and creating, creating this once only spoken language, creating it as also a written language for the purpose of translating the Bible into that language so that the Balanta people can hear and understand the gospel. And do you know where they start with translation? Genesis, because the Balanta people who know nothing of Christ need a context to know how to understand him. It's not enough just to go to the Balanta people, learn their language, and immediately translate John and say, look, the good news is Jesus has come. Those who once walked in darkness now, you know, walk in light. The light's come. Jesus is here. Yeah, what do you think about that? And they're like, what? Because they have no context for understanding the need for Jesus to come. But when you start in Genesis and talk about how a holy God created the heavens and the earth for his glory. And he created mankind in his own image to be the pinnacle of his creation. And he placed them in this beautiful garden for their benefit and for his own glory and gave them one and one and one only rule. Don't eat the fruit from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You realize the tree of life, which was also in the garden, they were free to eat of the tree of life. We often forget about that when we talk about Genesis. They were free. They could live forever. Just don't eat the fruit of this one tree. And what they do is they disobeyed God sinned against him, were cast out of the garden, and forever a gulf, a division exists between God and man. It's called sin. And then, you know, we have all of this Old Testament where we get the Tower of Babel and the choosing of Abraham and, and, and we, you know, we get the flood and, and Noah and, and all, you know, and then we've got on and on and, and Moses and the law and I, and and these kings and kingdoms that get split and some obey and some disobey and, and we get this a people who are always God's people but always rebelling against God and so he's, he's often judging them and, and punishing them for their disobedience and, and 
when we get all of that context and we know and understand that, wow, we need a Savior because we are, we, we on our own have no power to please God and draw near to Him. So we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, and we're waiting. And then, in the fullness of time, comes Jesus. Then we have appropriate an appropriate context. The Balanta people have an appropriate context when they understand the Old Testament. Who, who are the people in Indonesia that we prayed for today, Caleb? The Burgess? Burgess? The Burgess people in Indonesia? <clears throat> they need the same context. It's not enough to go to the Burgess people in Indonesia and just talk about Jesus coming. They need a context to understand why Jesus came, why it was necessary for him to come and to truly celebrate. They will see Jesus as Savior and Lord when they understand him in appropriate context. And we too, you and I, will understand Jesus as Savior and Lord when we understand him in the appropriate context. This is quite possibly the longest introduction I have ever preached at Redeemer Church. So here's the truth, the overarching truth that, I, that, that, that I'm going to suggest we'll see in the text this morning. That God's eternal plan, sovereignly displayed, is for Jesus to be our great high priest. So if you were taking notes, I would write that down. God's eternal plan, sovereignly displayed, is for Jesus to be our great High priest. Let's read the text. You can follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only one called by God, just as Aaron was. This morning, we, we, we really want to begin at chapter 5, and then go back to chapter 4, because we want to begin with this Old Testament priesthood. And what I want to suggest is that the Old Testament the existence of the Old Testament priesthood points to the gospel. The fact that there is an Old Testament priesthood that God himself has established points to the gospel. So go with me to Hebrews chapter 5 and see what it says. It says that for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Stop there for a moment. Here's one of the things about the existence of the Old Testament priesthood that points to the gospel. There is a God. Do you see that? The, Old the existence of the Old Testament priesthood 
is based on the supposition, the presupposition, that there is a God. Because that Old Testament priest is appointed among men by God to be to minister to men on behalf of God. So there is a God, and that God is holy and perfect. He's the creator of all. He is the one who is sovereignly in control of all of history. That God exists. The, Old Te- the existence of the Old Testament priesthood points to that truth. That this holy, righteous God exists. But also, we see in Hebrews chapter 5 that there is sin. Look at verse 3. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Okay, so the Old Testament priest, (coughs) excuse me, he offers sacrifices for sin, for his own sin, and for the sin of the people. Why? Why does the Old Testament priest offer sacrifices for sin? Maybe it's been a while since I preached here. When's the last time I was? Because this is my church. I mean, like my pastor here. Let me see. Because normally when I ask a question, I'm anticipating your response, right? Have you all forgotten that already? I can't believe you all forgot that already. So why? Okay, he's sinful himself. And absolutely correct, but why why even a sacrifice for sin? What's the deal with sin? Yeah, okay, yes, here's the deal. Sin creates death and separates us from God, right? That's why that's why a sacrifice for sin is necessary. But this is a truth we find in the existence of the Old Testament priesthood that points to the gospel that there is a God and sin exists and separates man from God. Sin separates. There is sin that separates man from God. Man's sin keeps him from a right relationship with God. That is a truth that is pointed to by the existence of the Old Testament priesthood. And then finally, look again. The priest in verse 3 is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the people. Okay, again, why does he offer sacrifices? Because an appropriate sacrifice is necessary to forgive sin. Another gospel truth pointed to simply by the existence of the Old Testament priesthood that sin requires an appropriate sacrifice in order for sin to be forgiven. Now, in addition to the existence of the Old Testament priesthood, there are also some inadequacies of the Old Testament priesthood. And those inadequacies promise a perfect mediator. The inadequacies of the Old Testament priesthood promises a perfect mediator. All of those P's were unintentional. Because I certainly would have put propitiation in there if I was attempting to create an alliteration, and you know that. You know I'm telling the truth. Here are some of the inadequacies 
of the Old Testament priesthood. I, I, man, there's a hole right there. I'm just kidding. Okay, first of all, what happens to a human priest at maybe age 60 or 70 or 80 or 90? Dies, right. And an Old Testament priest dies. What does that mean? Someone else has to be then appointed or chosen as a priest. So can a human priest guarantee constant access and mediation before God? The answer to that is no. Why? Again, because he's going to die. That human priest is going to die, and there's going to be a time when the old priest dies before the new priest is chosen and, and, can, and can then assume the role and duties of high priest, and, and he might do it differently, okay? He might even take him some time to learn it, okay? And so, because the Old Testament priest is a man who dies, there can be no guarantee of constant access and mediation before God. That is one of the inadequacies of the Old Testament priesthood. So that promises a mediator who will not die, correct? Because we see the need, we see the inadequacies, and we think, gosh, there's got to be one who's going to come who can guarantee access to God and constant mediation before our Heavenly Father. There's got to be a mediator who is greater, who is perfect as a mediator. Right. Being a sinner himself, the, 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 the high priest, the human Old Testament high priest, being a sinner himself, he would have to offer sacrifices for himself. We, we read that in verse three, chapter 5, verse 3, a couple, like three times now, okay? That this high priest, because of his own sinfulness, his own imperfection, he too must offer sacrifices for himself. So he doesn't just go in there on behalf of the people. He also goes in there on behalf of himself. And that sacrifice that he offers and the blood that he sprinkles, you know, uh, on, 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 the, on the mercy seat. It's not just for the people, but also for himself, because he is a sinner. That means his, his, his ministrations, his ministry, his mediation before God will be imperfect, because he himself is imperfect. And therefore, the sacrifice that he offers will be imperfect. So an imperfect priest making an imperfect sacrifice, what do you think that equals? What? Imperfect atonement. Exactly right. A, 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 an atonement that is not complete. That's what we mean by imperfect. It is not complete. And therefore, what do we say about the priest's work? The, the, the human Old Testament priest's work, what do we say about it? Is it ever done? It's never done, right? It's never done. Why? Because it's imperfect, and it's an imperfect atonement. So the guy's got to go in there every year to offer this sacrifice of atonement, year after year after year, until his death. And then the next high priest, year after year after year, until his death. And then the next high priest, year after year after year, until his death. And you get the pattern, right? 
because it's an imperfect man offering an imperfect sacrifice, which equals an imperfect atonement. His work is never finished. The existence of the Old Testament priesthood points to the gospel. The inadequacies of the Old Testament priesthood promises a perfect mediator. And Jesus finally and perfectly fulfills the role of great high priest. Now, now let's look at chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. You see, Jesus finally, no other need for a high priest, Jesus finally and perfectly fulfills the role of great high priest. Why? Well, first of all, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Every human high priest ever went to the grave and stayed there. Stayed in the grave. But Jesus, after dying on the cross for sin, was put in a tomb raised to life, hallelujah, and, and, and sits now at the right hand of God. So Jesus is alive and lives eternally. So there is no other need for any other high priest ever because Jesus, who is alive and lives eternally, will eternally fulfill that role of high priest and is always ready and in the place to be a mediator between man and God. Because remember, Jesus is with God, seated at his right hand. Jesus who has passed through the heavens. In other words, Jesus who has ascended into heaven. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. So think about, if you want somebody to be a mediator between you and God, you want that, that one to be as close to God as possible, right? Can't get any closer, right? Because first, Jesus, in, the, in, the lang, in, in human language, in, in, in sort of the view from the ground, he is seated at the right hand of God. But then, if we want to look at, you know, the, the view of that from the air, from God's view, Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God. He is God. And Jesus, the Son, is God the Son, Jesus, God the Son, is mediating with God the Father, but still God. Wow, that's even, that's hard to wrap our minds around. But here's what we need to know. We have the perfect mediator, Jesus, our great high priest, who is in heaven with God, seated at his right hand, positionally ready to be mediator between God and man. Also, Jesus finally and perfectly fulfills this role of great high priest because he is the son of God. Look what it says. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God. Our great high priest is the Son of God. That means that he is both the perfect presenter of sacrifice and also the perfect sacrifice. Because that's what Jesus has done as our great high priest. He has become both the presenter of the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for my own. Do you see, in that statement, Jesus is both great high priest who presents the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. Now, if Jesus, if Jesus' life was taken from him, if he did not lay it down of his own accord, but it somehow was forcibly taken from him, Jesus would only be the sacrifice. He would not be also the high priest who offers the sacrifice. But in that statement of, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for my own, of my own accord. Jesus is becoming both presenter of the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. And because he is the Son of God, who is tempted in every way as a man, yet without sin, he is the perfect atoning sacrifice. Where the blood of animals was insufficient, the blood of the perfect, holy Son of God is all sufficient for the forgiveness of our sin. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, is the only one, the only propitiation. For us, the only one who can absorb God's wrath for sin on our behalf. And then, finally, no, this is the first finally. This is not, there's, there's two more finallys after this finally. I just want to warn you. Jesus was tempted, yet without sin, and so he is sympathetic. That's also what we read in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet, with, yet without sin. That's that thing that, you know, every priest is tempted. Every human Old Testament priest was tempted to sin, but here's the deal, they gave in. Jesus was tempted in every way as a man, yet never gave in to sin. Therefore, that exalts him to the place of being an appropriate, eternal sacrifice. But it also means he can sympathize with us because like us, he also was tempted. And now, there are some who might say, well, because Jesus never gave in to sin, he doesn't really know about temptation. Only those of us who've given in to sin really know about temptation. If you will think about that statement, it is completely ridiculous. I mean, it is. I mean, if you were thinking that before, I do not want to be, I, I, mean, I, I don't want to belittle you, okay? Let me help you see the error of that way of thinking, okay? So, what you're saying is, Jesus, who was tempted and, and withstood and was tempted 
and withstood and was tempted and withstood and was tempted and withstood for 33 years and he withstood temptation overcame temptation to the point of shedding blood you're saying he doesn't know about temptation because you who've been tempted for a little while and gave in no more is that what you're saying is that what i am saying if i hold that way of thinking and understanding you see how see how just ridiculous that is how can i who maybe am tempted and i withstand the temptation once or twice for an hour or two and then i give in or perhaps i who am tempted and withstand the temptation for a year or two and then give in how can i know about withstanding temptation if i regularly and consistently give in only one who has always withstood and done so not just for hours or days or months, but for his lifetime. He is the one. Jesus is the one who knows about temptation. Therefore, he is sympathetic. Jesus, as our great high priest, is sympathetic to our sinful condition. second finally the last point from the text is that Jesus is our great high priest up to this point we've been talking about Jesus as high priest in this very sort of generic doctrinal this is the truth way look at the truth but now we want to look at Jesus as our high priest. Not just the truth of it, but the impact of it. What does it mean for Jesus to be your high priest? What does it mean for Jesus to be my high priest? Because Jesus is our high priest. How do we respond? This is the one that I wish Chet was here to hear, was present to hear. Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your confession. That, that is the first reality of Jesus being our high priest that we hang on to and hold on to and cling to and grip with all of our strength the hope that we have in Christ. Because that's what our confession is. Our confession is this, that Jesus is the Son of God who came to this earth and suffered and died for sin, mine and yours, and died, gave up his life on a cross to absorb God's wrath for sin. He was placed in a grave and rose victoriously on the third day to once and for all and forever defeat sin and death. And by repentance towards God and faith in Christ, we have forgiveness of sin and hope of eternal life. And hope, when we talk about it in the biblical sense, is a calm assurance, not wishful thinking. Don't think of hope in the biblical sense as wishful thinking, but calm assurance. I know that I know that this is true. So holding fast our confession is clinging to our hope in Christ. And this morning, if you're here and you have never 
turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, then hold fast to a conf- and make a confession and hold fast to that confession. Today, turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ as your only hope for the forgiveness of sin and hope of eternal life. Make that confession today. And then from this day forward, cling to it. Grip it with all of your life. Hold fast to it. This morning, if you're here and you've already placed your faith in Christ, there's been a point in time or a process in time. It can be either a point in time or a process in time where you turn from your sin as God enabled you to and put your faith in Christ as God enabled you to and you are a Christian, hold fast to that hope. Because there are, there are things that happen in our lives. There are difficulties that come. There is the sin that tempts us. And there's the sin that we give into, to our shame. The sin that we give into, all of that works to diminish hope and cause us to, to release that hope and forget about that hope and, and not cling so tightly to that hope and, and to even wonder and doubt about that hope. Hold fast to the hope that you have in Christ. Hebrews 6 tells us that God, wanting us to give, give us more strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope, did two things. He, his nature and his word, he gave those to promise that we have hope in Christ. And... Here's the deal. God made a covenant or he made an oath and a promise concerning his character, his nature, and his word. And so basically, this is what God did. If Christ fails, I'm not God and I'm a liar. That's what God did. When he wanted to give us more strong, encouraging hope, God said, my very nature is God and the truthfulness of my word. I will make those guarantees that Christ will not fail. And this is what Hebrews 6 tells us. We now have a strong, secure anchor for the soul. And that is our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold fast to that hope. But also, notice what else it says. In verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is our great high priest, draw near with confidence or boldness to the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. Church, because Jesus is our great high priest, he guarantees our constant access to God. Because Jesus is the once and for all mediator, if you are in him, you have access to God and you can, should, and must go before God's throne of grace for mercy and grace to help in time of need. And here's the great things about this boldness to go before God's throne to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. One is that we can go boldly. And remember, this is because of Jesus. Because Jesus is the high priest that he is, 
we can boldly and with confidence go before God's throne. Regardless of what is going on in your life, regardless of the, the current state of your faithfulness or obedience to God, you know, here's the, let's, be, let's be real about this. When we've given into sin or when we haven't been particularly spiritual, when we haven't really been meditating on God or thinking about Jesus or reading his word, we feel like, oh, I can't go before God. I can't go before God because, well, I, I, I kind of just came off giving into this, giving into this sin. You know, I, I sinned and I was disobedient to God, and I got to let some time go by, and let that sort of settle a little bit before I can go before God. Or you know what? I just haven't been faithful enough lately. Like I just really haven't been reading the scriptures much, and my thoughts have been mostly on myself and on the world. I haven't been thinking and meditating on God much at all. I can't go before His throne. I can't go to Him now. Wrong. You can go boldly before God. You know why? Because it's not about you. It's not about you. It's never been about you. It's about Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because He's the great high priest. Because He's our final and perfect fulfillment of great high priest. You can boldly before, go before God's throne regardless of your circumstance. Regardless of what you've done. You can go boldly. Because that's an awesome, incredible reality truth for us in the church today but it's also to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need notice the words mercy and grace that reminds us that we don't deserve the help we're getting it's undeserved but freely given by god's grace it is a mercy and it is a grace to us that we can go boldly you see, again, it's all about what God's done, not about what you do. Okay? When we turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ, we are in Him, then we get what we don't deserve, which is help in our time of need. And then this, I guess the final thing we need to think about is we all need help, right? We all are in need of help. And when I say help, that almost, like, that almost diminishes what we need. We need everything, right? Because we have nothing. We have nothing. Spiritually, we have nothing. So we need everything. So we need more than help. We just need God to do it. And so that's what we find. Though undeserved, God does it in our lives because of Jesus, our great high priest. Finally, the third and final finally. History, I know this is cliche, but history is his story, right? It's God's, it's God's story. History is God's story. It's his story, okay? God is the orchestrator of history. God reveals himself in history to accomplish his will, his divine plan, his purposes, okay? And, and God's eternal plan, sovereignly displayed, is for Jesus to be our great high priest. The existence of the Old Testament priesthood points to the gospel. The inadequacies of the Old Testament priesthood promises a perfect mediator. Jesus finally and perfectly fulfills the role of great high priest. And Jesus is our great high priest. Bow your heads with me as we pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is our great high priest and we need no other. Father, I pray that we would indeed, because Jesus is our great high priest, 
hold fast to our confession, our hope in Christ. God, I pray that we would indeed draw near with confidence to your throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. God, I pray that we would rejoice and worship because we have a high priest such as Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.